Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, sleek handles, and shipping right to your door, just in time for the holidays. Right now, get $5 off the Winter Winston set, even if you're a returning customer. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code POLITICALHOLIDAY. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Slate Political Gab Fest for December 12, 2014. The America's National Shame Edition I had a different title but Emily and John stopped me from using it. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson are conspiring against me together in New York. I'm in D.C. Just the way we like it. Yeah, although Lots I... Lots of conspiracy. I, I feel at the end of the year, I'm always trying to gather traditions together. I think it kicks off at Thanksgiving and, you know, I go and see my stepfather. I, I feel like we should have had an end-of-the-year tradition of, a, like, a long boozy lunch oh, and that would be so great i, I would love yeah. a long boozy lunch the year is 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 petering away but oh, uh that'd be great yeah so anyway let's all right let's plan in. that plan that for next year on today's show the senate releases its infuriating tragic report on the cia's systematic torture of terrorism prisoners after 9-11 also the rolling stone gang rape story continues to frustrate and confuse everyone although perhaps not emily Bazelon. If anyone is not confused by it, it'll be Emily Bazelon. And then Stephen Colbert, the greatest political satirist in modern America, perhaps the greatest political satirist of all time, ends the Colbert Report. We will talk about how, if he changed American politics. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And on Slate Plus, the bizarre collapse of the New Republic. Before we get started, quick announcement. Beloved intern Max is going off to a job. That means he can no longer intern for us, which is sad. But... 
Who cares? Max is yesterday's news. No, the, we care. We care because, and listeners should care too, because the net reduction in quality of the show will be will be profound. Big. It'll yeah. be profound. A less <laughs> oh perfect intern candidate out there. You come and save us from yes. ourselves. Be a perfect intern candidate. So we need a resume and cover letter from you. And a pitch for an evergreen topic that we could talk about on the Gabfest. Something <laughs> yeah, do a lot not of about those. evergreen. Some topic, some topic that we could talk about any week. Now um, the topic has to be about an actual evergreen. That would be cool. And uh, email us at gabfest at slate.com. Max will be picking his replacement, so I advise lots of flattery of Max. The week brought us the worst that this country has to offer. The Senate, or perhaps more accurately, Senate Democrats released a report marshalling a daunting amount of evidence to show that the CIA pursued torture policies against detainees that were more extensive and horrifying than we have known, that the torture did not, in fact, produce evidence that prevented further terrorism or help us catch Osama bin Laden, that the agency lied about the extent and nature of its torture and even about the number of prisoners it held. It wasn't even sure how many prisoners it held that the CIA made conscious efforts to manipulate public opinion, that it hid the loathsome extent of its practices from the president, secretary of defense, secretary of state. The report reveals behavior that is loathsome, vile, counter to every value that we ought to hold dear. Its release, I suppose, speaks in some sense to the strength of American institutions that we managed to study this, but also to the extremely partisan divide. The report is being widely condemned by former Bush administration officials and current Republican officials. And it suggests that it will produce no change at all in American politics and possibly no change in American policies. Americans, according to the polling, support torture today more than they ever have. So, Emily, one of the very first pieces you wrote for Slate was a, was a tour de force about the what we knew about torture back in maybe 2004, 2005, and what we knew about the law on torture you have been looking at this issue for 10 years. What was new in this report for you? It was so much worse than I thought. You know, I was reading things I'd written, and I sort of tend as a slightly, you know, establishment person to give the government just a bit of the benefit of the doubt. And that was just the wrong thing to do in this case, unbeknownst to me. In fact, the government was lying to us about the efficacy of torture, about so many important things along the way. And I find that kind of breathtaking. I was struck by a quote from one of the people trying to take down this report saying, look, in order to believe it, you have to believe that hundreds of people engaged in a conspiracy of evil, essentially. And in fact, that is tacitly what happened. Now, of course, there are reasons why people who weren't at the top of the ladder and super directly involved went along with it because they were in an institution that was demanding that of them. But um, the level of cruelty and human degradation that went on all in the name of protecting the United States. It just makes me so aware of when you think you're the good guys, just how scary and dangerous you can be when you make that license to just break all of the rules. John, should there be, there will not be, should there be prosecutions as a result of what has been found? The White House officials I talked to when asked about, will anybody be punished? And we should obviously talk about the current director of the CIA, who on Thursday gave a qualified but pretty strong defense about the efficacy of 
enhanced interrogation. And I think that we've got some classification things to work out here, too, about what's torture, what's enhanced uh, interrogation, what was an overstepping the line because you knew exactly where the line was and you put on your dirtiest shoes and jumped right over it, and what was a fumbling over the line because you were in the fog of war. A variety of those things, I think, need to be straightened out just for my own ignorance. So the White House has basically said John Brennan is doing a great job and the president uh, thinks he's great. And Brennan was involved, was at the agency when this was going on. And they basically say that the people who were involved in this were following what they understood to be the legal practices because of the memo uh, memos put together by the Justice Department giving them their guidance. And this now, this gets into the famous set of questions about, you know, you can't just say I'm following orders. And Emily knows better about where that line is. And also, John and Emily, that it is true. And I, and I think there's real strength when you're talking about what the CIA officials who are carrying out the torture did. The fact that there was legal justification, abhorrent, disgusting, meretricious, wrongheaded legal justification does excuse does explain and excuse some of what they did and and makes them not as individually culpable. However, a lot of what they did, Emily Wright, was beyond even the scope of what the legal justifications allowed. I think that's right, although I think also a lot of what they did fell within the scope that John Yu, the um, Department of Justice lawyer who authorized this and came up with the legal rationale for it, allowed. You know, I care only or almost entirely about deterrence, about making sure this doesn't happen again. I feel like prosecutions are only are only interesting to the point that they serve that goal. So what makes me deeply afraid is that by not punishing anyone, we are setting ourselves up to repeat this, especially given the very divisive reaction to it. But I actually think what I would the most want right now is a kind of sober reckoning and some consensus about what we know and don't know and what this report shows. So I'm actually much more troubled by all of the instantaneous dismissals and pushback than I am by the lack of prosecutions. I, I, I'm, that's where I'm mostly because it's the only ground I feel like I have any standing to talk on. But that's what bothers me the most is I understand why this was uh, produced by the Democratic majority on the Select Committee on Intelligence. The politics has taken over this so completely now. I mean, I think you can say the truth to the extent that we can find it is somewhere different than where the Democratic report is. And it's also somewhere different than where Dick Cheney's. It's a lot closer to the Democratic report than it is to Dick Cheney. Well, it feels like we've broken through to a point where it's going to be really hard to find out what the actual... Oh, I disagree. I think we know. I think we just have broken through to a point where the defenders of this program are never going to admit it. But when you look at what they're actually saying, specific by specific, it doesn't add up. I mean, the the main defense essentially has to be that not of torture and not of harsh interrogation, but of the detention interrogation program as a whole. Because then if you phrase it in those terms, which is how this Wall Street Journal op-ed signed by these former CIA officials does, then you can take credit for a lot of things that happened before the torture started. When people like Abu Zaydah were actually talking, which then they stopped doing. Right. I, I think one of the things that, back to my problem with classification, that need that would be nice to have clarity on is also the debate between It's not just whether anything useful was gained from this. That's not the real test. The test is whether 
traditional methods or less severe methods would have yielded you the same information or, and this is McCain's argument, would have yielded you more. So what, what happens is we get into this debate about whether anything was learned from, this, from these practices. And that's not the point. Something was learned, yes, but could you have learned the same something with less horrible techniques? But and, that's kind of the genius of the report because they actually can show in a number of cases that detainees who were tortured gave up very good information before they were tortured yeah. and then stopped. But what the other side says is... They gave up, and that's why we had to torture, right? They stopped talking, and then we had to go but do But then the... the torture didn't produce any new actionable information in case after case. I mean, that's what shocked me. I just always assumed, like, there was something to this claim. And, I mean, I is also it, think, But isn't, like, there, isn't there something wrong about, in the long wrong, about making it a utilitarian argument? Because yeah. fundamentally, funda- I, I think the utilitarian argument it doesn't have no value at all. It clearly has value, and it, you need it to prove but basically, what we did was wrong because it was just absolutely morally wrong. It was the stuff that the Nazis did. It's the stuff that, you know, the worst Stalinist Maoist excesses did. And that's even independent of the results. Absolutely what was being done was wrong. And I actually think the best thing that we can do here is to explicitly name all the techniques that were used, to identify them, to say what they are, to say we used rectal feeding. We kept people up for a week. We, we used rectal feeding. That is rape and torture. We kept people up for a week. That is torture. We waterboarded them. That is torture. We kept them in isolation for you know unbelievable, horrible amounts of times. That is torture. And name these things because Americans will sit by and say they're for enhanced interrogation. If they are told that something is torture, they will not stand for it. I think if we name the practices, I think if you name the practices and say this is torture, people will – it won't happen again. I think – I'm not sure that's true. I mean the polls – we know what the polls say. Well, maybe everybody doesn't know. So in 2005 when a lot of this first came to light, you had uh, 36 – just 36 percent of the country said – torture should never be used, which means that the majority thought there were cases in which it could be. Now that number of people who say it should never be used is in the mid-20s. We saw in the reaction to the No, it's not torture, John. You're you're wrong. It's It's enhanced enhanced interrogation. If you ask people, should torture be used? No, it's torture. The AP poll asked them torture. torture. Let's look that up. Anyway, but the point is, uh, whether you call it torture or you call it enhanced interrogation, the majority of the public is in support of the the measures. And so my point is that what needs to be done here is it needs to be explained why this is so important. Because what people think, and the reason I mentioned the public opinion polls, is they think, yes, those acts, if done to my relative, would be horrible. But these are being done, this is their view, these are being done to the people who plotted the attacks on 9-11 and killed thousands of Americans and who behead people. So their tolerance for rough activity increases a lot more when they think it's being done to people who are so horrible. And also never allowing torture takes out the ticking time bomb scenario, which, although it almost never actually occurs, looms large in people's minds. Yeah, but, you know, it never actually occurs, right? Right. No, I'm I'm not... I'm not suggesting. I just think that there's a way to explain the poll numbers that's not quite as dire as like Americans all, you know, many of Americans think torture is totally great and can't wait to have well, it come back. But surely nobody's saying that. What they're saying is in a, in a situation where people are frightened and think the people that are being that are having this done to them are the worst evil in the world, 
they don't get so upset about it. But isn't this where the utilitarian argument is important? Because if you absorb the idea that it doesn't work, then you're left with all the damage this does to America's public image and the sort of hydra-headedness of, of radicals recruiting people abroad. And we're not even getting actionable intelligence from this. Uh, so the question, the way the AP asked it, both in 2005 and again in 2013, is how do you feel about the use of torture against suspected terrorists to obtain information about terrorism activities? Can that often be justified, sometimes be justified, rarely be justified, or never be justified? I, I back off. I concede. Well played. Oh, that Google, it's a useful tool sometimes. Well, no, I had them. I had people look for this when I wrote about it this so week. What so what happens next? I mean, Obama wants none of this. The 2016 crowd wants none of this. Does it just go away like Saxie Chambliss and Dick Cheney yell for a little bit and create as much confusion as they can, blathering, and then we pretend this didn't happen? Well, I, this comes back to my point is I wish somebody, and maybe David... David was getting there, but I think you have to account for this fact that people think this is being done to the worst of the worst. You have to, in making, what I'm, what I'm looking for is the most powerful case that can be made for why this is a bad idea to those people who are in the, you know, ma- majority who feel like torture should be used in certain uh, instances. I think what's really interesting, Emily, you mentioned the president. He is in this box because basically he will not say, and his administration won't say, that these methods were ineffective. And that's what John Brennan, the head of the CIA, said they were effective. And and Obama won't contradict that because he's got to rely on the CIA to do their work right now, which is a really tough place for him to be in. I also just want to reserve a moment of shock for the conduct of James Mistral and Bruce Jessen, the two psychologists who created this program and then and then ran a private company that took the program over in 2005 and got paid $80 million for that. I just, like, it's that is an amazing, scary fact to me. You can make $1,800 a day torturing people. Oh, my God. One of the interesting points to, to that end, actually, is that so much of the justification of this is, oh, this was the crazy days after 9-11. We didn't know what was happening. We were using every desperate measure. But it didn't just happen in October 2011 or December 2011. It happened over years and years and years afterwards. Right. And so the urgent, this this idea that is only because of the urgent moment where we didn't know what was coming next just doesn't hold up when you actually look at the timeline of what we did and when we did it. There is a set of people that's that's bigger than, than Dick Cheney that thinks torture is bad. They think maybe in the heat of the moment they can understand how somebody might have done it. But even when uh, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, who are quite against the release of this report, made their remarks, they said torture is is bad. But I feel like the conversation now about the report, whether it should have been released, whether it was a thumb in the eye to the Bush administration because there's nothing – you know, the the practices have sort of stopped and, and this is only going to harm America's reputation. That's overtaken the debate. And so the underlying reaffirmation of the idea that this is not something that uh, America does and that there is broad bipartisan support of that, leaving Dick Cheney aside for a moment, that is being lost, I think. I think that's right. And, and it's one of the reasons the 2016 candidates are being chicken about it. They don't want to take the John McCain position, which is McCain's position is torture is horrible. This is a blight on our entire nation. And it's important we expose this even now so late. No presidential candidate is taking that because they're 
in the Republican Party, they'll be seen as giving aid and comfort to the Democrats who did this partisan thing. And, and in all fairness to the Republicans, I don't hear Hillary Clinton saying that so damn right. either. Damn which right. Is an embarrassment. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And her, yeah. All right. Let's leave it there. Oh, God. I feel, feel Ill. gutted reading this. The GapFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com with the holidays almost here. You don't have time to go to the post office. There's the traffic, the parking. It's packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. You can use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you do there, you can do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. Your mail carrier picks it up. Right now, you can get a special offer when you use our promo code GABFEST. A no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. The Rolling Stone Jackie gang rape story continues to unravel. The Washington Post reported on further profound problems with the journalism in the story. Now appears that the reporter who wrote the story, Sabrina Erdley, failed to contact the friends who were with Jackie the night of the supposed rape. A Washington Post reporter who did interview the friends suggests that Jackie perhaps fabricated elements of her story to her friends, perhaps invented a student, invented it, maybe even a text, invented a phone number and texted under a false identity. The entire story is in shadow. Rolling Stone's reporting has been almost entirely discredited, but the basic question of what, if anything, happened to Jackie remains a mystery. It is just bad. It's a mess. It's awful. Emily, is the kind of unfolding mess of this story teaching us, are we learning anything? Is the country thriving and prospering because of the disaster that this story is? I mostly am having a lot of trouble coming up with any upside for this because I think that sexual assault is a real problem because we know that most women who say they've been assaulted and raped do the opposite of lying. In fact, they're reluctant to come forward. So there are all these ways in which the story cuts against the larger truth that are really hard for me to to find any positive in. I will say that... There are some really important lessons here for journalists and I think for activists. Part of what went wrong here was that some of the most active people in the movement to prevent rape on campus have been telling victims only to talk to journalists who promise not to contact their accusers. That's a condition. It's not a condition that journalists should ever agree to. I mean, really, like it's hard. For, I guess there must be some case out there, but I, it's very hard for me to see why that's okay. I think this story really shows what a disservice that kind of deal is, not just for the publication and the journalists, that's super clear, but also for a movement. Because when you don't allow the people in the world whose role it is to check and probe and fact check, then you expose yourself to exactly problems like this. You know, I'm still holding out some hope that some bad thing happened to Jackie that night because her friends seem convinced of that. But I'm finding it harder and harder to stand on that ground. I'm why, not are sure. you, why do you want I'm not hope? Sure. Why do you have hope that that happened? Well, because, because no, you want her some... not to have been sexually yeah. assaulted. It's so crazy. No, I mean, whatever. I guess. Sure, I guess. But I mean, this is otherwise the whole thing is so crazy. Um, and I just don't. Yeah. Well, we should talk about the emerging story and where things stand now. But I think to your question, David, and 
The Rolling Stone screwed up so badly, and the reporter on the story screwed up so badly, and you don't want to, like, jump on the bandwagon. On the other hand, what I have taken away from this is that actually everybody who's interested in journalism should look at this because um, not only the mistakes that were made up and down the line that are egregious, and you know we all of us who've written these kind of stories, not this kind of story, but any story in which you have multiple people telling different sides of a story, you can feel yourself falling into... For no, for no other reason than you want to write the story and have it be interesting and all that, you can feel yourself like closing a gap. You know, you have two facts. They're pretty close to each other. They don't quite connect yet, but, you know. It would know, be so much nicer if they would. <laughs> right. And so you, you know, you you make them connect, not because you thought thought it through. And then what happens is you're, you go check with everybody and you think, you know what, that, like, connection I made totally doesn't make sense. And or your you editors, have to give up and on And then you, you got to give up on it. And what I, and this is particularly true of the reporting Emily does and that mm-hmm. Hannah does, I just, like, it made me incredibly grateful for all of the hard work that they do when nobody's looking and when stories fall apart. My stories, right, politics, it never truly, totally falls apart. You can always kind of massage it. But on those stories where you have to go out and do all kinds of work and then it falls apart or the hard, 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 hard work of going to the person who's done the bad thing and just press them eyeball to eyeball and tell somebody who's telling you a wrenching story that, like, it doesn't add up and it isn't right. That is hard, noble work that I'm totally reminded of in the errors and absences and lack of same in this piece. And so for me, it's not just about jumping on the bandwagon to beat up this reporter, but it's a way to think about all the incredible work to people who write these kinds of stories about these kinds of really delicate, ugly, tough issues and do it the right way. That's where I'm trying to find my hope. One of the themes in this, and I'm interested in how you guys handle it, is that for a certain category of people, and journalists and police officers should never be in this category, but for a certain category of people, you should choose and the issues you care about to believe. You should you should be a believer in the stories you hear, the people that come to you for in, in certain forms of advocacy, that it is it's not everyone's job to seek the truth. That sometimes your job is simply to support and affirm. Do you guys think that's true? Do you think there are, there are things when you're not acting in your journalistic capacity? Of course, we do this with our children, obviously. You do it with your children or your loved one. You tell uh, your loved one that, uh, indeed, he is he is the best football player in America, despite the fact that the team just cut him. Um, <laughs> you tell your children lies like that of affirmation. But in general, is that a stance that we should go through in the world? As a journalist, it's very hard to do it. I mean, I'm so allergic to this that I it's hard for me to wrap my mind around, which means... I guess that I'm in the right profession. I was talking recently to a health educator on a campus about a sexual assault case. And we had this whole conversation and he was clearly like had really helped this girl who considers herself a victim and was like passionately advocating for her to such a degree that I started talking to him about the facts that are alleged. And then he said, oh, no, I have no idea whether this is true. Like, that's not my job. My job is to, like, take her at her word and try to help her. It was so surprised. It took me so aback. I'm not saying, I mean, I, I see the utility of that in certain situations, sure. But I have to say that I don't think that believing things that seem like they are not true helps anybody. Because if you let people get away with big lies, then how is that going to be healing for them? Right. And it causes what's caused all the wreckage that's been caused here. I believe in a lot of things in order to have the psychological comfort or otherwise I would 
There's some things that you don't want to poke into too much. I mean, it's like a chicken McNugget. I mean, when you once you take a bite, don't look at what's in what you've taken a bite out right. of. You We're have all to loud you have spots. to go you have to commit all the way through if you're going to make the initial investment in the chicken McNugget. That's true of some things, kind of on the margin. But anything that's matter anything that matters, I think you owe it, even if you're an advocate. Maybe perhaps especially if you're an advocate for the underlying cause, you owe it your skepticism because otherwise you, as a supporter of the cause, become characterized as a person who is unthinking, and then you convince no one of anything because you're just a booster. Right. I mean, this is like with the with the DNA evidence cases and the, the Innocence Project folks. Those guys don't take every case. They don't, no, not at all. They're so skeptical of the cases that come to them, and they take you know a very small number and then are, are fierce advocates for what they for those cases they take, but they begin with a high stance of, of skepticism. So the three friends who met Jackie after the alleged incident occurred all talked to the Washington Post and tell a very different story in which the Post doesn't explicitly say this, but in they do all the interviews and in which it basically, the narrative that comes across, Emily, check me if I'm wrong here, the narrative that comes across is, is that Jackie had a crush on her first-year friend and created a kind of fake persona of a third-year student uh, who was taking her on dates as a way to make the first-year boy who had turned Jackie down feel jealous. And to that, the degree of taking a photo of a guy she knew from high school was nowhere near UVA and making it part of this fake account. Right. It, right, which we know is a guy that went to high school with her and not a real dude from UVA because somebody did the reporting. Right, and also, like, the text still existed. So those are, like, real things that people can look at. And so it's it, the post story moves one very much in the direction of thinking that the underlying event was a hoax. Although I have to say, those st- same friends also say she was really yeah. traumatized that night, and there is this parallel story she told later with the name of another guy who does go to UVA, but who says he never met her. So it's, to me, that part of it's still really And isn't even in the fraternity. Isn't in the fraternity, but did work at the pool where she worked. Right. I guess the point is, all of this is known because reporters went down there and asked the questions and found the pictures and did the hard labor you're supposed to do to figure out What do you guys think Rolling Stone's responsibility is at this point? They've been almost entirely silent. (laughs) And to the extent they've talked, they've made it worse. Right. First making it seem like they were blaming Jack. I'm kind of mystified by this, though. Like, why are they letting the Washington Post go and fix this for them? Don't they have an independent response? They claim they're going to go re-report it. They're going to hunt for the real. Well, I'm waiting. The the, the problem with Rolling Stone is that it is not a magazine that has any culture of journalistic integrity. It has a a culture of journalistic excellence. It has a culture of journalistic excellence. It's done amazing work over the years, but it's owned by a very idiosyncratic individual. It's not a it's not really part of a larger journalistic body. It's not like Time Inc. where there are a billion different magazines and and a strong journalistic culture. It's a quixotic venture. And so it doesn't really have standards. Is that true, though? I mean, yeah. I think the people who work there would disagree with you. Like, there are editors, fact checkers, libel lawyers, all of who all of whom are all of whom are clearly incompetent. I mean, the lie, the lawyer, the lawyer. I, I know. That's I find story. that inexplicable. I want to know who that lawyer is. That lawyer. The lawyer. Needs well, to and be... what's the real mistake that lawyer made? The thing. This is the thing I find the most like bizarre is naming the fraternity because that's the actionable claim here. Since there, we don't know who the supposed accused boys are whoever they may be or not be, they don't have claims, but this fraternity has a claim. It's it's nuts. Do you guys think, do you think, Emily, that um, 
that sexual assault on campus is a really big issue. Like when I think about what the problems on campuses are, it feels like there are there are probably five or six I could think of that feel more urgent and important for the country than sexual assault. You know, I'm not so big into rankings, but I will say that since my own college career and certainly up until now, there has been enormous distress among mostly women and people in general who feel like they've had really shitty, illegal or not, things happen to them involving sex in college and very little response that's useful. You know, you think about it from the university's point of view. Until a few years ago when the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education really forced schools to start trying to deal with this in a more serious way, it was schools had every incentive to just get rid of this stuff. Nobody wants to serve on these sexual grievance board committees. Nobody wants the reputation of the school to be tarnished by having a reputation as a, quote, rape school, as one of the quotes in Rolling Stone put it. And there there has to be some way of creating an environment on campuses in which it is, I think, not at least until we have different better trained police and we can really count on police departments all across the country to treat rape victims fairly and take them seriously, then these schools have to be in some kind, have some kind of role well, to play too. I mean, just I mean, one one more thing. Just think about Florida State University. I mean, Jameis Winston. Not. Well, I cannot help thinking about them because the New York Times has done pretty amazing investigative reporting to show not only that the Tallahassee Police Department and FSU gave Jameis Winston a big free ride, but that they've been doing this with all kinds of football players and athletes for a long time. And I hear rumors about that, about other towns involving other big football schools all the time. Yeah. I haven't gone and tra- you know chased them all down, but it's really um, hard for me to believe that if we just removed the colleges and universities from this equation, which people have been asking for, that things would be better overall. I think we still need them. We, I'm not saying they have it all figured out, but we need them like tr- we need to give them more of a chance to do a better job. On maybe this. maybe my view on this is is that it, this doesn't. I don't think of this as actually a colleges and universities problem. I think this is a problem of young people. That when you have people who are from the age who are like at their most sexually active, sexual discovery, like the men are just hopped up on so much testosterone. John and I couldn't even handle it; it would kill us. Um, at this <laughs> I age. think I was hopped up on other things, but that's and Andy, and you're hopped, hopped up on, up on other things. But that's I don't. I guess I just maybe it's the collegeness of it. It feels to me like this is a problem for twenty year olds. Overall, I think that's and, true, but the that colleges are like the obvious place to right. start tackling it. They're the educators of the most 18 through 22-year-olds in the country, right? And look, before you give up on them, some things like the bystander intervention uh, efforts they're making are having an effect. Kid, I My sense from my reporting is students who go through those trainings they're eager for this idea of looking out for each other. That's not like a super hard thing to do. That's like something they can kind of take on in a way that could prevent a lot of these assaults and change the culture in which people on the margins are trying to like intimidate or wheedle their way into sex with people who really don't want to be having sex with them. All right. GabFest is also brought to you this week by Harry's. Harry's is a source, of course, of fantastic razors, Shaving products delivered right to your door. Do you have somebody who is impossible to shop for on your gift list? The guy who has everything, the John Dickerson type. How about giving somebody a razor? 
and in particular a Harry's razor. It's it is not a typical gift, but trust me, you will get something. It's beautifully packaged. The Harry's razor is gorgeous. I have one. It is it is like I have this orange one. It is the loveliest color. It has a beautiful heft to it. They have great shaving products, great razors, and they have a, a deal which they call Harry's Winter Winston. I don't know why that's called the Winston Chet set. Maybe it's after Winston Churchill. I bet it is after Winston Churchill. It's only $30 for a sleek chrome razor, three high-quality blades, and their amazing foam shave gel or shaving cream. It's wrapped already, and the shipping is always free. And as a special holiday offer, Harry's is gifting all listeners of the GabFest $5 off with our promo code POLITICALHOLIDAY. So even if you're already a loyal Harry's user, you will still get $5 off a winter Winston set with our promo code Political Holiday. You'll get that razor, the three blades, and the tube of shave gel or shave cream for just $25. So go to harrys.com now and get $5 off with the code Political Holiday. Harry's is a shave good enough to gift. Stephen Colbert's last show airs next Thursday, next Thursday, December 18th. We thought we would spend a few minutes paying tribute to him and talking about how he changed how Americans think about politics. There's a certain quality of meta here. Emily is a regular on the Colbert Report. Stephen, we know, listens to us at least some of the time. And maybe he'll skip this segment. Maybe he'll skip this segment. I suspect he is turning <laughs> off the segment. He's falling asleep right by now. now. You can yeah. say whatever the hell you want. Uh, so, and I don't think we're going to pretend we're anything but super fans of his. In my mind, he's the greatest political satirist of all time. It, the character he's created is performance art at the highest possible level. It is the, it's unbelievably impressive. First, the original creation of it, and then the way he carried it out, varied it, performed with it, altered it over 10 years. It's astonishing. And um, there have been a lot of theories in the last few weeks as people kind of line up to honor him. It's sort of like it's, he's almost at his own funeral. In fact, there was, a, there was a Rolling Stone essay which imagined him dying, imagined his death. It imagines the death of the character, Stephen well, Colbert. The, the, odd thing, dying. the odd thing about the Rolling Stone article is it actually said he was dead. <laughs> Another fact-checking problem at Rolling Stone. Oh, dear. Is he actually killing the character? I didn't realize that. Oh no! I'm no, ki- oh, I don't know. No, I was making it. The Grim Reaper and stuff. I was, uh, I was making a uh, Rolling Stone joke. So what, do you guys think that this show accomplished anything? Look, we all know. We can look to it. We all have our favorite segments. He was in the zeitgeist over and over again. Did it accomplish anything? Here's what I think it accomplished that is totally apart from the making fun of punditry, which is an important part of what he does. But the campaign finance stuff, yeah, that's the most – on two levels. One, as someone who's trying to sell campaign finance stories <laughs> – to a number of different institutions, of which uh, members here were both uh, were once a, a member, but also in television land, it's just like goes over great, huh? Yeah, it just doesn't work. And nevertheless, it is cr- it is like at the centerpiece of politics. It's it's one of those great disparities between what they what the system cares about and what the you know news the coverage world. is about, and what the world is about. Emily, that's the more important point: is what what you talk to regular people about. And what he did with his various stunts was was incredibly creative, first of all. You know, it's one thing to make jokes. It's another, as you, you called it, performance art. It's, it's another thing to, to see this thing out there and then make yourself a participant in it. And then every time you find another absurd rule, like play with it in a way that it shows and not tells. And that's, 
that's what people have been trying to do with campaign finance stories for so long is do the basic thing you're told to do as a writer, which is show and not tell. And so he showed and like over a protracted period of time, that is like a really Wait, no, as a no, political no, no, act, no, no, a hard no, thing no. to do. No, 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 no. Look, no? I'm as big. I'm I'm there? as big a fan as as any of you guys of his Trevor Potter stuff, of his Super PAC, of the handing over the Super PAC to John Stewart, of all the various shenanigans he he carried out. But I mean, unless I'm mistaken, it didn't accomplish anything. Have, have I? Did I miss a campaign finance bill that went Whoa. into effect? Oh, did I miss? Did I miss the House not passing? Gun, do you feel extension? that way about gun control too? With the fact that there isn't gun control, all efforts to have yeah, it well, no, that's, are bad well, that, and this pointless. Is what, this is what I'm trying to to interrogate. Is I don't if, think if, that's if, a wait, fair no, test. Can I finish? I'm not no. saying it's a. I, <laughs> Go it, ahead. Sorry. Had there been massive campaign finance reform, getting rid of the loopholes that he wrote about, we would all say this was, you know, Stephen Colbert instigated, you know, part of the national discussion on it. He raised awareness. And there is strong evidence that people who watch his show know a lot more about campaign finance, campaign finance law than people who don't watch the show controlling for all sorts of things. People learn a lot from it. But in fact, if you think of this as as a form of political action, and I'm not sure that that Stephen does, but if you think of it as a form of political action, it has had no effect at all, Right. The country right is now, not any closer to any to to these laws that he would like. Or, well, also, I'm not sure that it has to result in legislation for people to have their minds opened or, or changed or uh, have a deeper understanding of the role. I mean, gosh, if, if causing legislation that undoes the problem were the bar for any piece of political activism, everybody would just stay home and nap. I mean, what movement has succeeded by that measure? It's really, like I guess. The civil rights movement. The maybe. civil rights movement. Hallelujah. <laughs> the women's movement failed. We still don't have an equal rights amendment. I, You know, look. I think that gay marriage is a movement of our time. Is a so a movement of social change in our time, which people but initiated by who? Initiated by, by millions of different like people. A tiny fraction as powerful. I mean, really, it's just not. It's not commensurate in terms of how many moneyed interests there are in this country that are keeping campaign finance the way that it is. Also, Look, you. Can I'm admit- not saying. I'm not saying he. I. I'm not in any but you way set impugning it. Up as a it. Test. I. I think. As I said, this is the greatest piece of performance art and greatest political performance art of all time, political satire. I'm just but if you say the purpose of this is to cause change in the world, can we look and say here are places that that Stephen Colbert or Jon Stewart or Bill Maher or anybody has caused change in the world? Does this actually well, don't do put anything? him in the don't put him in the category of Bill Maher. I think he's much more clever oh, than Bill uh, Maher. Yes. Yeah, sorry. But no, I mean, they shouldn't be in the same sentence. No. Um, because of this point. I mean, I'm talking about it as a almost like a piece of journalism. In other words, it gets people to think differently. And just let, leave it. Let's yes. leave aside your question. I agree with what you're trying to do, David, I think, is what I normally am fumbling around with, which is a classification. Like... You know, the highest possible thing you would want is for massive social change as a result of what you do. And but that is not you know, there are categories below that that are still uh, meaningful. meaningful. And you're just trying to say which category does it go in? Here's a sort of related example. I would give Stephen Colbert some credit for John Oliver's show, which is even denser and wonkier and lately super clever. And when Oliver went on a rant about net neutrality, 
So many people wrote in comments that the government's website about net neutrality, like, burned down. And then, you know, the Obama administration came out in favor of net neutrality much more strongly. Now, I mean, that wasn't Stephen directly. But there's this con- this flavor of work on and entertainment on TV. This particular blend is a blend that he and Jon Stewart created. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's also, it seems to me, pretty evidently true that the force for liberal activism and liberal action in the TV world does not come, sorry, John, from like the, the networks, not that they're aspiring to it. It doesn't also doesn't come from MSNBC. It's basically coming from the comedians. The, the counterpart to Fox is not Rachel Maddow. The counterpart to Fox is Stephen Colbert and Jon Stewart. So, you know, another thing to think about, you know, there's this is a cliche that young people get their news from The Daily Show and Colbert instead of any other source. And then you can either find that lamentable or like perfectly charming because that's a perfectly good source of news. Either way, if this generation of young people turn skews more liberal than their parents or just liberal-ish generally, I think, you know, Colbert and Stewart are part of that right. because right. it's part of these people's DNA. Right. It's not and that I think- even you get your news, you get your ideology from them. Yeah. Although the ideology that the system is rigged I don't think you need to be watching them left, to right. know that. And well, no, no. I think you don't have to be left right on that. Yeah, but think your ideas is... of the solution of what to do about <laughs> well, the system being that's... rigged might be very different. Um, and the Should lampooning we Obamacare or have more people on Medicaid. My favorite thing that I've read about the Colbert retirement was by Rick Hertzberg in The New Yorker. And he makes a point which hadn't occurred to me before, which is that why is it that the interviews on Colbert have so much more friction and are so much edgier and get so much further than they do in most other TV? And he says it's the actual one-dimensionality of the character, like the stupidity of the character allows him to take kind of Dada challenging positions that most interviewers are sort of afraid to take or won't take like he doesn't he's not afraid to look ridiculous because the character and he'll is call ridiculous. bullshit in a different way because he's not being polite yeah, he, and if right. we are playing any clips we should play either a gavin newsom or a barney frank clip right now or both i want real citizen engagement i want two-way conversations i want citizenship to be redefined i don't want people to do things to me i want to do people to do things with me so it's all about building partnership and building capacity building community that's what, what citizens what about. do you mean capacity Again, to do great things. every single one of these things to could do. be carved on a stone and put in someone's garden as, as, like, <laughs> as like a mantra, but I don't know what they mean. What do what you I mean, mean by that? Two, what, what? Capacity. I'm talking about community. Bandwidth, talking you mean. About, you yes. mean governmental bandwidth no. so that all of us can, can <laughs> hyperlink our engagement to democracy. <laughs> See, I can make this shit up, too. No, what are you? Stop making it up. No, what are you talking about? It's about... So can I say two more things? One is the... Um, the clip of him interviewing the woman who's to help who helps you sign up uh, on healthcare.gov is so funny and the ability to like stay in character when you're saying these totally he's basically like hitting on her the whole time and it's just so painful and it's so funny but to like just stay as a pure joke this is just this has nothing to do with politics it's just funny to watch was uh and the other thing i want to say is leaving at the right time is a skill that is really hard. I think, you know, he's got a nice place to bounce to, but I think knowing... Leave them wanting more. Yeah, and just knowing the... Capturing a moment in time, I think that's that's a talent, too. Do you think that there's a space for for this kind of performance art 
political comedy or to, is it basically Colbert's done it and there's kind of nowhere else to go. John Oliver, who who has clearly created a new form of political comedy, is doing something very, very different. Well, uh, there's also Sasha Baron Cohen as an example of this gonzo performance yeah, art. Yeah, right. That's true. I think that's there's true. totally a room for it. I mean, I think people, when it's done well, there's almost nothing more satisfying to watch because it's hilarious and saying something at the same time. Yeah. What, who, what would be the and space? So what would be the space to occupy there? You mean where's the open field? The open field's on the right, attacking the left. But yeah. what would the character the, be? Somebody could pull off a, you know, try to inhabit the body of, you know, sort of, I don't know who. Sanctimonious. Would, uh, sanctimonious Prius driving. Knee-jerk liberal. Yeah. Sure. I mean, what I'm imagining is somebody doing it with a, le- with a level of skill. You can imagine lots of ways that this would be. You know, not done well. You know, also what's great, I think, and somebody really smart could figure out a way to write this, but when you go back and read history, and particularly around the Civil War era, the role that political cartoons played is so crucial and important to encapsulating what was going on at the time, breaking through all the buffoonery and wind blowing. And I feel like that's essentially what we have now. Um, and the wind blowing and buffoonery is not just the politicians. I think that was also the innovation here, which is it's the all of us who go on TV and have thousands of opinions about things that we may or may not know anything about. And that like just the just like sheer billowing crap that's out there. I think puncturing that is is also what he does and what Stuart does, which is um, which is a great service. You know, that's more than having to do with politicians. It's having to do with pundits, too. Wind blowing and buffoonery. Are my two middle names. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When, when you're sitting on your porch in New Haven, Emily, mourning the demise of Stephen Colbert, what would we be chattering about with your? All right, young I am going to regret this chatter because I'm going to sound like Andy Rooney by the end of it. But <laughs> Do man, you I am not an early adopter like ever. But today, I downloaded some new iOS. From my iPhone, and I am so sorry. And what I don't understand is why, oh, why there are these constant updates to the software that I use that come and like ping me all the time and make things worse for me. I don't get it. If you're going to push out some code, can you please make sure it's an improvement, like a major improvement? Because I am like a stodgy old person and I don't want to have to refigure out something that's working perfectly fine unless there is like a serious payoff. And whatever this new iOS thing is from Apple. I hate it. It's like causing these little words to bounce up when I write messages and various apps I use are no longer functioning. And somehow my husband was getting my messages this morning. Damn. <laughs> like a bad That could be bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah, now we find the root of the issue. <laughs> it was exciting for Paul. Anyway, I really, it's just a huge bummer. So there's my uh, Andy Rooney moment. <laughs> John, you got one. I thought she was going to do something like, did you ever notice lint? I mean, it's in your pocket. I did, like the 2014 version of Did You Ever Notice Lint? I mean, it's in your pocket. How did it get there? I thoroughly. Um, The Andy Rooney's Underwood typewriter that he typed on, which is like a 1913 or 1919 Underwood typewriter. Maybe I can get one of those. Is in the the bowl at uh, CBS News. Um, It's a beautiful typewriter. my chatter is about Wilbur Mills, the former uh, Ways and Means chairman from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a Democrat um, from Arkansas, who this week in um, 1974 resigned from office 
And those who do not know about Wilbur Mills, he was an incredibly powerful chairman of this, the tax writing committee back when chairmen of committees had a lot of power and things actually got done in Congress. Um, Wilbur Mills had two problems. One was that he was an, a severe alcoholic. The other is that he was married but dating a stripper whose name was Fanny Fox. And in October of 1974, Wilbur Mills was drunk and driving with Miss Fox near the tidal basin, and they got into a car accident. And after they crashed, Miss Fox dove into the tidal basin in the attempt to uh, swim away, uh, but she was unsuccessful in doing so. This was in October of 1974, and just to give you a sense of how things have changed, Wilbur Mills was then reelected by a big margin in November of 1974. During this period, though, he was an increasingly... He would basically drink... And he started to, he basically says for long periods, he would just black out. And in one of those periods, he was, this is another, my mother plays a role in this story too. My mom and dad were out having dinner somewhere and he grabbed them and said, you must come with me. And they went to the strip club. He took them. This is the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. You don't say no to the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Took them to the strip club. And he pointed to uh, Fanny Fox and said, I own her. Mr. Mills was married and had kids. Then, basically, after he gets reelected, he goes up to Boston with Fanny Fox and gives a speech from the strip show stage, which he says he never remembers giving. But once he did that, that was the end of his career. He had to resign this week, 40 years ago. Um, and he then went on to uh, to get clean and founded, actually, a, a, a um, an institute for recovering alcoholics. But this is one of the great Washington scandals. And to give you some sense of how time has changed... Think now to who the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee is, Paul Ryan, who is probably the cleanest living member of Congress and is known for his extreme P90X workouts, which means when you stand next to him, he has – you can just feel the lack of body fat. It's like you're standing next to like a stainless steel girder, which is quite opposite from uh, Wilbur Mills. (laughs) Uh, Stop that. Good uh, luck. I will not top that. It's not a competition, Emily. My cocktail chatter. First, before I get to it, this holiday season, Slate wants you to gift better and shop smarter. And, and so Slate's introduced Slate Picks, a curated collection of products from our editors and writers, books, toys, board games, more. They're Slate's favorite things we have bought, given, and loved. June Thomas's favorite writing tools. That's pretty cool. Outward Blog's list of gay anthems. Also cool. Anyway, go to picks.slate.com and make your holiday shopping easier. My chatter today is about Robert Caro, who wrote, of course, the great biographies of Lyndon Johnson, but he's also the author of The Power Broker, the tremendously long and absolutely incredible book about Robert Moses, the builder of New York City, who who built so many highways and bridges and tunnels, parks and beaches, and did so much damage to the city even as he did so. Caro's book came out in 1974, I think, but he wrote it in the, I guess, the late 60s and early 70s. And in the New York Times this week, he wrote a little op-ed about how he came up with the last line of the book. And in fact, coming up with the last line of the book enabled him to take this years and years and years in research that he'd he'd been trying to figure out and realize what the structure of the book should be. Here he was sitting in 1969, he thinks, and he had this insight like, oh, of course, this is the last line of the book. And it's about... uh, slightly complicated, but about why, why wasn't everyone, anyone more grateful? 
it was a t- sort of trying to understand why it would be that people were not grateful toward Moses. But but Caro's account of coming to this and it's account of it's an account of writer's block. It's an account of a uh, flash of inspiration, and yet the inspiration, of course, was was predicated on years and years and years of hard work. Is a great for anyone who's engaged in some monumental task or anyone who's a writer. No, it will be totally depressing to them because I am never visited by inspiration about my last line. Ever. But you don't have writer's block, Emily. That just makes Emily. me bitter. You don't I, have writer's block. You are you are you don't need it because you are just you're a machine. You are you are uh, born machine an old, for writing. Like, serious major overstatement. I would really like to be visited by the muse of the last line. You don't come, need the muse. You don't need the I muse. Do. The deadline is the muse, Emily. For Ugh. you, the deadline. No, I kickers are impossible for me. There, ha- it has a couple of times happened where I thought like. This is where I'll get by the end. That, but that is like, Carol. He is great. He he's d- talked about and written about his writing process in other ways too, and he's always so great about it. Our intern for just a few more weeks is Max Tawney. Our producer is Mike Volo. Joel Myers, our managing producer for Slate Podcast. Bowers, Andy is the executive producer. Our show page is slate.com/slash/gabfest. It has links to what we talked about today. Facebook page, facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address where you should mail your intern application, please, is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. Search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store to find us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.